You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. Well, good morning. So uh, I want to share with you all a story. We're still in Acts today, but I thought I'd share with you all a story that you maybe recall um, hearing from back in 2008, a little while ago. Um, It was a story of a teenage girl who was uh, about to go into her senior year of high school. Her name was Kim Mills, if that sounds familiar. Um, She was about to go into her senior year of high school, and she talked with her parents about taking this big trip abroad, doing some travel abroad over to Europe with her friend Amanda, who had some family in France. And so they hatched up this plan, and the parents are kind of apprehensive of her traveling without them, but they're like, oh, she'll be in college soon, so this will be a good start for her. So her parents let her go on this trip. Um, And so they they fly out, they land in France, and that's where they were supposed to meet um, Heather's friend Amanda's family, and they were supposed to meet them at the airport. But it turns out, because of a series of events, Amanda's family was actually out of town when they arrived. And so their plan was just to make their way to their apartment on their own. Now, most of us would think at that point, like, okay, we'll get a cab. This was 2008, before Uber, right? So we're like, we'll just get a cab or whatever and make our way to the apartment from there. These two girls may be made, looking back on, on it, probably made a terrible decision because they had met a cute French guy in the airport and they hopped in his car and then drove to the apartment with him with all, all the parents like looking around like, no, if you ever go international, like that is not what you do, right? But they get to the apartment, seems like bullet dodged, right? Like everything's cool. Turns out that guy maybe wasn't a psycho and just dropped him off. <clears throat> that is until that night when some very bad men arrived at the door and abducted both Heather Mills and her friend. However, Heather Mills' dad was a former CIA operative. And fortunately for Heather, he had a very select set of skills. Skills that made him a nightmare for people like the people that abducted Heather and her friend. And Liam Neeson in the movie Taken would stop at nothing to get his daughter back, right? And I I totally, you guys were with me. Like, you guys thought I was talking about a real thing. No, it's just the movie Taken, right? The movie Taken, Taken, Liam Neeson's daughter gets abducted, and then he goes after her, kicking down doors and, and getting people back. Now, why do I bring up a 2008 movie, a movie from over a decade ago that did, okay, like, why would I even bring that up in church this morning? It's because of this. It is a story of a father that would stop at nothing to get his daughter back from the clutches of evil. And we love these kind of stories, right? The story of love's pursuit. If you look at stories, whether it's like a romantic comedy, like a cartoon for kids or an adventure film, whatever it is, we love the stories that focus on love's pursuit, like Taken. Or better yet, if you're in the romantic comedy genre, we love to see Ross run to the airport after Rachel, right? Or we love to see Adam Sandler run to the airport after Drew Barrymore, right, in the movie Wedding Singer, right? Or we love to see every character run after every other character in the movie Love Actually at the airport, right? Like, we love these stories of people pursuing people. We love this, and it's not just like our modern time, our modern shows and movies. It can go all the way back to, like, the the age of, like, writing before we watch TV and things with Pride and Prejudice, right? We love the story of love's pursuit of Mr. Darcy coming back for his love, right, and reclaiming Elizabeth. And we love to see that at the end. I'm only familiar with the story because it's my wife's favorite movie. And if she is sick, that is the movie that's playing while she's on the couch, is Pride and Prejudice, the one with Kira Knightley or Natalie Portman, whoever, I can't tell them apart. We love these stories, right? And so we've got that one, or the more adventure movies, like the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. We love to see Will Turner pursuing 
uh, Kira Knightley or Natalie Portman, whichever one it is in those movies, we love that story of love's pursuit. Even the early, like the prequel Star Wars ones, we love the story. Like there's a lot of terrible stuff in that, but there's a good story uh, of Anakin Skywalker pursuing Padme, played by Natalie Portman or Kira Knightley. I can never tell them apart in whichever these movies are, but we like these stories. Even the Toy Story movies, right? We love the story of Sheriff Woody doing whatever he can to get back to Andy, his boy, because he loves Andy, I haven't yet seen Toy Story 4, but I've read the book. The book is always better, and I'm pretty sure it'll just be the same thing of love's pursuit, whether it's a father pursuing a daughter, whether it's a man pursuing his future bride, or whether it's a toy pursuing his boy. We love the story of love's pursuit. And I think there's a reason we like these stories. I think the reason is that we have been designed and created and wired this way. And here's what I want to show you this morning. Here's why we're talking about all these films and Liam Neeson on a Sunday morning when actually we're in Acts chapter 16. is because Acts chapter 16, I believe, is a story of love's pursuit. The story of God pursuing one person. And it's a microcosm. It's a tiny story within the greater story of Scripture, which is the greater story of all of humanity. And it is God's pursuit of us. God's pursuit starting in the garden when Adam and Eve, when humanity, we turned our backs on God. And just like the song we sang earlier says, we made ourselves a foe. The rest of the story is us having made ourselves a foe to God, seeing God fight for us. And the way God comes after us, the Bible is a huge book of stories about love's pursuit. God's pursuit of you and I. So open it up this morning to Acts chapter 16. And we're going to start out in there, and I want to read to you this, and there's a map on the back wall so you can kind of see some of the areas that we're talking about. And uh, I'm going to take a crack at these names again, which I've been practicing all week, and uh, just go with me if it sounds weird. But here's what it says. And they went through the region of Phrygia. So the they they're talking about is Paul and his crew of people. Maybe Timothy is with him. We actually get to one point in here where the writer who's been writing the book of Acts uses the word we. And so we know that the writer of the book of Acts is actually with Paul on the second missionary journey. And that is Luke who wrote the gospel of Luke. So we know that Paul and Luke and just his posse, they're touring. And so they're on the second missionary journey and they go up to the region of Phrygia and Galatia. It says, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit, to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Musia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Messiah, they went down to Troas. And so let's just pause right there. Right there, we hear something very strange. All throughout Paul's journeys, most of the journeys we hear about in the New Testament, it's the opposite of this, right? It's some people going and God moving them there and God saying, you go to this area, talk to this person, and that's the story. But right here we get one of the rare times where God says, don't go in this area. Where God says to Paul, like, you can't go there. It says that the Holy Spirit told him, and at one point, like, Jesus forbid them from going. And I'd love more details, but we don't get it. We don't know why, like the exact reasons. We don't know how. I would love the how in this. Like, how did Paul know not to go in these areas? We just don't get those details. And for the most part, everything I read this week, trying to prep for this morning, all of the scholars and like smart people that spend their lives studying these things, they say the same thing. Like, I don't know. I do not know. This is weird. It doesn't usually happen this way. And then that's how it happened. I can only guess, or kind of as the way Luke writes this chapter, I sort of assume that maybe the reasons these areas were closed off to Paul is because of what's about to happen. But if you look at this map, you can see right here, that is over 400 miles that Paul travels on foot. 
on foot he travels. That would be like us from Bristol, Tennessee, walking to Cleveland, Ohio. That is how long that journey is, a little over 400 miles to get to Cleveland. And that's what Paul and his party do. They walk 400 plus miles, and every time the places are closed off to them, God says, don't preach there. That would be about like loading up the station wagon with your family for the great vacation all the way to Wally World just to find out that Wally World is closed, right? Any Clark Griswolds feeling what I'm talking about? This is probably what Paul and his party felt like. Everywhere they're going, they're like, we're here to preach the gospel. We've left. We walked all these miles. But then the Spirit says, not here. Keep walking. And so they do. They keep moving. And then it says in verse 9, finally, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing right there urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so then, verse 10 says, when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is, a leading city, a leading, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained in this city for some days. So now if this were us journeying, we're all the way up in Canada, right? Like Paul set sail another good bit. And so we would have crossed like over the Great Lakes and all that stuff. Now we're up in Canada. That's how far Paul's journey has taken him. Would have been from like Bristol to Canada. It is a huge way. And for the majority of this, over 400 miles, Paul was told not to preach the word, not to go into these cities. But then he finally gets to this one place, this one city of Philippi, and there it says he meets some people. And so in verse 13, the story picks up. It says, on the Sabbath day, again, here's that we, so Luke is with him too. We went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And so right here, Matt talked about this a couple of weeks ago, uh, where in order for a city to have a synagogue, there needed to be at least 10 Jewish men. And so we can learn that Philippi, the city, had less than 10 Jewish men. The Jewish community, the population of people that believe in God in the city is very small. So small that they don't have enough people to have like a quorum to develop a synagogue. So there's no synagogue there. So instead, Paul and his people, like they've maybe talked around town and found out like, oh yeah, but on the Sabbath, you can go out to this spot and it's a place of prayer. And it says there at this place of prayer, there were some women who had gathered. And so we don't hear about men being there, which probably means that men maybe had not shown up there, but we hear about some women there. And so we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us, was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thaltera, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, Paul has come over 400 miles. He's been on a boat. He's been through this massive journey. And here's the first person we hear about him talking to. So I wonder, the Bible doesn't say exactly, but I wonder if Luke writes it in this way to maybe get us guessing that Maybe the whole reason these doors were closed off to Paul in these other areas is because Paul needed to talk to this woman. Paul needed to meet with Lydia and the people in her community and her circle. So we get some little details about Lydia, and I'd love to just read more. Like, I wish we had a, the book of Lydia, like in the Bible, to just tell us all about her. I was joking with somebody earlier, like, somebody needs to write some fan fiction, some Bible fan fiction for Lydia. Like, that's the story I'd like to read. But here's some stuff we can kind of gather about her. It seems that maybe, most likely, she's single. Maybe she's been widowed. Maybe she never married. There's some stuff later on that talks about her household. So maybe she's got some kids, which makes most scholars think, like, maybe she'd been married at some time and now is widowed. But we know that she's on her own. And then it says that um, she is a, a, a worshiper of God. 
that she knows about God, but she's not like a Jewish. She's never converted to Judaism. Her family was not, she didn't come from a Jewish family. And so she's not considered a Jew, but she believes in Yahweh, their God. And she maybe adheres to some of their customs, but she's never converted to this religion. So for Lydia, she knows a good bit of it. She knows, I would say, part of the story that we know that God created the heavens and the earth, that God led Israel through the waters, that God had a chosen one, a promised one, a Messiah that was coming. And for Lydia, that's kind of where the story ended, like many Jewish people in that day. And so we know that Lydia was a, a fearer of God, that she feared God. But then it says this, that she was a seller of purple goods. Now, history tells us that purple was like a, a, a fancy dye back in the day. Like there were some dyes that were easier to make and much cheaper to make. Purple was more rare. And so if you were like royalty or like you were big stuff, like you could afford purple and you would wear purple to show like oh, I'm big stuff or I'm royalty, right? And Lydia makes this stuff and she sells it. She was a seller of purple goods. So now we hear, we don't know to what level, but we've got a, a woman who seems to be like at least a small business owner, right? Like maybe we could go as far as saying she's a fashion designer. She's got her own fashion business and like makes purple stuff. And, and it sounds like it's probably doing pretty well because purple would be expensive. It'd be hard to get a hold of. And Lydia's making money off of that. So kind of the picture I paint of this lady, I don't know if it's accurate or not, but as of a, a woman who's on her own, but has developed a business and is doing very well for herself. She's a sharp lady, right? And she's probably a little wealthy. We talked about this story on Wednesday night. I got the, the youth group was together. We went to Steel Creek Park on Wednesday, and I was actually trying to get them to write my sermon for me. And I was like, hey, guys, this is what I got to preach on on Sunday. You know, tell me what you think about this Lydia girl and, like, write this sermon for me. They didn't help out that much. But there was one thing as we're talking about Lydia and we're, like, digesting these things. One of the, the kids, Hayden, said she sounds like a boss, which I would have to agree with. I think that's a great description of Lydia. She's a boss, right? She's on her own. She's making money. She's got this business in a world where that didn't happen. In 2019, that's a big deal to have a lady on her own, owning a business, making money. That's a big deal. 2019, we're talking first century Greco-Roman world where women didn't work, where things like this didn't happen. And usually a widow would just be accepting handouts, but not Lydia. Lydia is a boss. And so she sits down, Paul sits down with her, he talks about her, talks to her about God. And we can only imagine that at this point, Paul is filling in the rest of the story. And he's like, well, you heard about God. You've heard what Isaiah wrote, what Daniel wrote. You've heard that there's this chosen one, this Messiah coming. Well, his name was Jesus. And he was God. He was God's son. God sent him to be the rescuer, not just of Israel, but all of the, the whole world. And that Jesus, that Messiah he died on the cross, and his death on the cross was a death for you. It was a death for me to cover up our sins, to be the sacrifice, just like many Israelites celebrated for so many years, to be the sacrifice for our sins. And the Bible tells us that when he spoke, it says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. It's not what Paul says. It's not because Paul came out of the gate with like a hilarious analogy to a Liam Neeson movie, just really got her attention, drew her in, and then she's like, I'm in. It says that God opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart. So God wanted to speak to Lydia on that day. And maybe that is why all the other doors were shut to Paul so that Paul could meet with Lydia on that day. If he'd stopped over in Asia, maybe he would have missed Lydia. If he'd not accepted God's call in the first place to go to Macedonia, he probably would have missed Lydia. If Paul had not been walking on that road to Damascus and been blinded and decided he's going to reroute his whole life based off of what Jesus did for him, then definitely Paul would not be talking to Lydia. 
But it seems to me that here we have a story about a woman who has been pursued by God in a big way. That God was going to stop at nothing to get to Lydia. That God was going to use Paul and the other people and guide them directly to Lydia because God wanted a relationship with Lydia. It's a story of love's pursuit. Just like the whole Bible is a story of God coming after you and I, we see here that he's stopping at nothing to get Lydia. Now, I think it's easy to hear that and be like, yeah, but, but me, really? Like, I know God went for Lydia. Like, I see the proof that maybe he went for Lydia, but I don't know if I see God going for me. Well, maybe we don't see it in this tiny story, but again, in the entirety of the Bible, I hope you can see that. That it was for you that God re-altered the boundaries of heaven and earth and opened up whatever lines separated them so that he could step through and that the spirit of God could become flesh so that God himself could be born as a man on our earth. The boundaries of heaven and earth had to have been like tampered with, re-altered, reoriented so that God could come into our world. God stopped at nothing to be with us. And then just coming into our world, that wasn't enough for him He came into our world and then he lived like us. He lived with us. We see Jesus walking around with the common folk. We see Jesus sitting down to dinner with the common folk, the sinners, the poor, the brokenhearted. But then we see Jesus die for them. We see Jesus die for us. The story of Lydia is our story, that God pursued us, that God chased after us. And so what I want to do right now is just kind of take a break. And have some reflection on that. This isn't the end of like our preaching time. But I just want to pause. And I feel like it's a good time, a good reflection for communion. And so I'm going to invite our ushers to go ahead and stand up. And we'll do it just in the middle of our preaching time right now. I'm going to invite the ushers to go grab the baskets. Jessie's going to come up. She's going to play some background music. And for our communion time today, I just want to have a time of reflection of God's pursuit for you. That God separated or, or knocked down whatever separated heaven and earth to be with you so that he could have a relationship with you. That God wasn't satisfied that humanity turned their backs on him in the Garden of Eden, but instead he pursued them. God wasn't okay with us dying a death in eternity separated from him in hell. And so God broke down what was separating heaven and earth. He broke down what was separating you and I so that we could be with him. And so as they're passing out communion, you guys can go ahead and start passing it. You're going to find some bread in there. And you're going to find some juice. And the bread represents Jesus' body. We invite anybody that considers themselves a Christian, a follower of Christ, to partake with us in this. Because the night that Jesus died, or the night before he died, he gathered with his disciples, he took some bread, and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took some wine, he passed a cup around, he said, this is my blood poured out for you. So as that plate comes by, you can go ahead and dip it. And maybe just hold on to the bread for a minute and realize that this bread, this symbol is a symbol of what Jesus did for you. A symbol of the great lengths that God went for love's pursuit because he loves you. And so as we hold that, as communion is being passed, I'm just going to read from you a poem out of Psalm, uh, Psalm chapter 18. And this is a poem that David wrote when Saul was chasing him and then God rescued David from Saul. And you might even hear echoes of this, of how God rescued Jonah from the sea by by having a big fish come and swallow him up. You might even hear echoes of the story of Lydia and how God pursued Lydia. But what I hope you hear is a poem about God's love for you and the lengths he went to rescue you. Psalm 18, verse 4. It says, The cords of death encompassed me. 
The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help from his temple. He heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked and the foundations also of the mountain trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. Verse 16 says, He sent from on high, and he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. This is our story. Because sin, our real enemy, is too mighty for us. Death is something none of us can conquer. And God saw our enemy in death, and he wasn't okay with it. So he ripped apart heaven and earth, and he entered in in the form of Christ, in the form of a baby in a manger. In verse 18, it says, They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Why does God do this? Because he delights in us enough to rend heaven and earth apart and enter into our world so that he could die on a cross for us. So let's do this in remembrance of him. God, we thank you for your pursuit of us. We thank you that when you were separated from us and us from you, that you weren't satisfied with that. And so you ran after us, like a father running after his daughter, like a husband chasing his future wife. We thank you, God, that you ran after us. And I pray that that'd be a reality today, that we'd see very clearly the great lengths you went to because you delight in us. Let us feel that delight this morning. And let us know that it's the reality we live in. It's the love story you have written for us. Amen. So that's kind of part one, I would say, of Lydia's story. Part one is that she realizes God has been pursuing her. Paul fills in the gaps of what God did through Jesus coming to our earth. And then we get this right here. After all this, verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 15, it says this. And after she was baptized and her household as well, we're going to pause right there. So we hear that Lydia hears the word and she doesn't just hear it, she puts it into action, which I think follows along with kind of the, the caricature I've drawn up of her in my mind is that she is a woman of action. She's not just going to hear something like, oh, that's great. Like, let me think about it for a while. Like, she's like, what do I do? And Paul's like, you got to be baptized. Like, that's the next step. It's a symbol that shows you've been washed clean, that you were dead and now you're alive. And so Lydia's like, I'm doing that. So Lydia is baptized. And her being a person like that works in purple goods and dyeing cloth and linen and things, she's probably well acquainted with this process of something being dunked and changed. Of the symbol of baptism that we are dunked signifying we have been changed, that we have new life. And for Lydia too, like she would probably know that like a cloth that's like half purple, that's not going to sell well, right? Like it was just sort of purple on this side, but then not purple on this side, like just dunked part way, just soaked a little bit, but not completely changed. Nobody would want to buy that, right? So Lydia is all in. 
It looks to me that Lydia's entire life is completely changed through this moment because not only is she baptized, but it says her household as well. And here's why a lot of people think maybe she was widowed because it seems that she's got some children in her life. Or, or maybe even it could be servants that work with her in her business. And so her, her co-workers, her family, everybody, she is telling them about Jesus. And then they are being baptized as well because of her influence. Again, Lydia's a boss, right? And I just, I think we'd be like, we would be neglecting something. We just didn't pause there and talk about the influence of a powerful woman on a person in their lives. I know for me, and probably many of you have asked for a show of hands, like we could just ask how many of you came to know Christ because of the influence of a woman in your life, whether it's your mom or grandmother or something like that. I know for me, that's true. And there's a lot of statistics that would back it up too, that many people, the majority of people that have come to Christ were led so by a family member that was female, by a mother or grandmother. There is something about a powerful woman's voice. There is something about the example of a powerful woman and people pick up on that. And in Lydia's life, it was very true. I know it's been, it's been true in my life, maybe in yours, but in Lydia, everyone around her then comes to Christ. Her whole household is baptized. And then it says that uh, after this, she says, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And it says that she prevailed upon us. Now, I love this. She says she urged us and then prevailed upon us. So she's like, Paul, y'all got to come stay at my place. And Paul's like, oh, no, no, no. Like, we went 400 miles. Like, we got to keep moving. And Lydia's like, you are coming to my house. And Paul's like, all right. Which I don't think Paul was often told what to do, right? Like, that doesn't really seem like Paul. Usually, he's telling everybody else what to do, even like Roman magistrates and stuff. But Lydia somehow is able to, like, crack the whip. And Paul's like, okay. Like, we're staying at Lydia's house tonight, boys. Like, everybody just go in. And it says, Lydia prevailed upon us. She is a powerful woman with a strong word and a way of, of, of influencing people. And so they stay there, and then what we see if we skip ahead to the end of this chapter, which we're going to fill out the gaps in it next week. Paul ends up going to jail and spoilers, all this stuff. Uh, but at the end of this chapter, before Paul leaves this town, before he leaves Philippi, it says in verse 40, they went out of the prison and they visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Some of your Bible translations may put it more explicitly where it says they visited Lydia and the brothers and sisters at her house. They go to Lydia's house because this is where the Christians have gathered. Do you see what's happened here in Philippi, in this foreign town where there were no Jewish people, not enough to have a synagogue? Now a church has started in Lydia's house. Lydia has planted a church in her house. So when Paul's about to leave, he's going and he's meeting other people that have come to Christ in this area at Lydia's house. And so for Lydia, I don't think it was just like a, a, a quiet change. I don't think she's like, okay, now I love Jesus, like nothing really changes. Everything changed for her. She starts turning her house into a church. She starts influencing the people in her business for Christ. Everything changes. She doesn't look at Jesus as just like a coat of paint that she puts on the house that is her life. She tears down the old house and she builds a whole new one, which is an example that I think we need to follow. I think all too often we let Christ come into our lives but it's like we're just laying Christ on top of our lives. We're not really changing anything about our life. Jesus, God, restructured heaven and earth to pursue us. I think that requires a restructuring of our lives to equip him. And so this is what we see Lydia do. She restructures everything in her life, and we see it continuing. If we get to the letter of Philippians, which Paul later on writes from a different prison back to this town that he visits here in Acts 16, and it tells us in verse 5 of Philippians chapter 1, he, he writes and he says, because of your partnership in the gospel, 
they begin a partnership in Philippi with Paul and his ministry. In chapter 4, verse 3, Paul speaks of these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, talking about people from the church in Philippi. Chances are, maybe it's not by name, but chances are that Lydia is one of these people that Paul is talking about that partnered with him in the gospel. And then he gets really explicit in verse 15 of how they've been helping him, of chapter 4 in Philippians. It says, And you Philippians yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. So when Paul leaves, they're equipping Paul. They're giving Paul an offering to help support his ministry, to help the believers back in Jerusalem. They're helping out Paul from the beginning when no one else did. Even in Thessalonica, you sent for me help for my needs once and again. Now, where's the the funding for this coming from? We don't know exactly, but I could guess that there's probably a wealthy woman who designs and sells purple goods and got her life totally re-altered by Jesus. So she re-alters her life and begins serving side by side with Paul and equipping Paul's ministry all over the world while she stays in Philippi. And that's what it looks like to be pursued by God and then to begin pursuing God. That's the story of a woman who saw that God was after her who saw love's pursuit coming for her. And so she changed everything for God. And so today, like my challenge would be this, is the band will come back up in a second. My challenge would be this, as we look at everything, we're just like, what do I do with that? What do I do with this this message? For one, I think there's some of us in here today that need to hear about God's pursuit, that need to hear God loves you and God went to great lengths to pursue you. And there's no amount of dirty things in your life that you've done. There's nothing in your life that has made you too great of an enemy for God to say, oh, no, no, like, I'm not going to pursue you. Even still, God goes after us. There's no one in here who needs to feel lonely. There's no one in here who needs to feel worthless because we can read about a story of how God pursued you. How God took everything that separates heaven and earth, got it out of the way, and entered into our world so he could die on the cross for us. So this morning, if that's a, a news to you, if that's filling in gaps in your life and your story, and you just want to hear more about that and what it means to become a Christian and then follow up in obedience with the symbol of baptism, man, we'd love to talk to you about that. And in this last couple of songs, there's a, our prayer and decision room in the back corner. You can go and meet somebody there and they'll talk to you about that. But there's other people here who I think probably know that God pursued you, probably have given your life to Christ. But my question would be this, does your life reflect it? Have we just painted our faith, just laid Jesus over on our house and just said, okay, that's good. I'm just going to kind of fit my Christianity into this part. Or have we allowed what Jesus did in our lives to tear down all of our stuff and build something totally new? Because I know it was the influence of people in my life that brought me to Christ, that told me this story of pursuit. And I know that everyone in here has someone in their influence whether it's someone in their household, a family member or a coworker or that neighbor across the street that you try and avoid because they talk for too long, I know that there's someone in your life that needs to hear this story. So my question is, do you understand that God is pursuing you? And have you re-altered everything to put him in your life because God re-altered our world to be with us?